know war is to know that there is still madness in this world. There are poor to be lifted up, and there are cities to be built, and there's a world to be helped. Yet, we do what we must. I'm hopeful, and I will try with best I can with everything I've got to end this battle and to return our sons to their desires. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly, somewhere I read of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read of the freedom of press, somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we proved once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. This is the Random History Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Van Dyke, and you can reach us on Twitter or at our website, randomhistorypodcast.com. Hi, and welcome again to a Random History Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Van Dyke. Uh, today, we're going to cover um, the first few months of the campaign in Archangel. I know you guys have been waiting a, a long time to actually hear this part, so I don't want to drag on for about 45 minutes, um, you know, just talking about random stuff ahead of time. Though a little bit of business to cover, I would like to say I did originally record this episode uh, over Thanksgiving. However, it sounded like trash because come to find out recording uh, a podcast with COVID is not conducive to producing a good podcast. I know, I know you're shocked because you were probably thinking, well, you know, Ryan, you kind of sound like crap right now. And that's also true. And I want to thank you for bringing that to my attention. Uh, That really helped my self-esteem. So thank you. Thank you very much. That's, um, Totally not hurtful. Uh, anyway, let's get started on this particular episode. Uh, hopefully you enjoy it. Um, I've already started writing the script for the next episode, so it should be out uh, pretty soon. Uh, but here we are. On 4 September, the Americans and allies arrive in Archangel. Archangel as a city left many with a lot to be desired for. The city's sewage was open ditch and led to a number of cesspits. While there was a government in place, at least on paper in the city, the Civil War had led to a breakdown of city services. The cesspits were often emptied and dumped into swamps and tundra, but it was clear that this had not occurred for some time. If that was not enough, the ground itself held the droppings of horses and dogs. Well, at first blush, that dogs and horses, I mean, that's to be expected, right? The automobile, while has been invented, and it is being sold slowly, and it's catching on, but it's mostly a novelty in big economic centers of the world. So in a rural area of the country in Tsarist Russia, yeah, they were just not something to be found. So one could expect a lot of horses and dogs. The American Sentinel, a newspaper established not long after the arrival, described the population of the city in this way. Quote, up here in this tough town, there are 269,831 inhabitants, of which 61,329 are human beings and 208,502 are dogs. The wind whistles across the Davinia River like the 20th Century Limited passing Podunk. End quote. I'm guessing, you know, I'm guessing there was a huge amount of dog No one would just come out and said there's a lot of dog but it sure seems like there was a 
ton of dog when the cesspits for 61,000 people are overflowing and you go out of your way to mention dog there has got to be a lot of dog though it was not so mind-numbing that one could not be poetic about it and describe it without gutter adjectives one soldier described the arrival this way quote never did i strike such a fine set of assorted odors end quote you see in the old days people had a mastery of language to a degree that is just lost today. The uncredited poet says the same thing I said in a fun, cheeky way with no gutter humor. Meanwhile, here in 2021, I'm just like, there was a metric ton of dog Oh, and the 61,000 people in overflowing pools fed by overflowing open ditch sewers running through the city under sidewalks was less offensive than this huge volume of dog But that's why you bring engineers to the campaign, right? Bet you can't guess what the 310th engineers did. Yeah, they cleared the cesspits to get the sewers flowing again. And they were, of course, the angry person at the dog park picking up after other people's dogs being quite cranky. Though, I bet they were more upset by a factor of 208,502 or so. I know you didn't tune into this podcast for potty humor, but this is important. Two of the three transport ships that brought everyone to Archangel had outbreaks of Spanish influenza. The mission was hastily put together by British command, so much so that medical supplies were not loaded onto the transports, so the ambulance corps had what they had personally packed from Camp Custer. Soon, they were out of aspirin. On the Nagoya, the outbreak was so bad, they didn't even take people to the infirmatory aboard if their temperature was below 103 degrees. They just had you lay on a hammock or on the open deck. Upon arrival, the British 53rd Stationary Hospital stepped up and took 25, um, 25, six soldiers. Yeah, that, that was it, just 25. Um, the Americans, though, they established their own hospital with supplies from the American and Russian Red Cross. By the end of the month, the patient count was 378 Americans, of which 72 died. Many of the sick were sent to barracks to ride out the illness with nurses checking on them. The barracks were unventilated, which is great if you're an airborne illness, but bad if you're a vector of said airborne illness, like, you know, a human. The other option for the soldiers was outside, and let's be honest, if you stayed in the raw sewage for too long, you were going to catch illness as well. Fortunately, the commander-in-chief, Major General Edmund Ironsides, and his pamphlets that were distributed warned soldiers that, quote, women of easy virtue habitually visit the cafe for the purposes of their profession, end quote. Needless to say, the Cafe de Paris was a popular hangout. It should be noted, however, that the profession that General Ironside was speaking about for these women was likely not that of seamstress. I know, surprise, surprise, right? But here's my evidence. The court-martials issued after the hospitals had an additional workload of, get this, 54 cases of syphilis and 129 cases of gonorrhea. So, again, probably not seamstresses. However, this goes back to the point. It seems disease was going to get you no matter what you did. Sure, hang out on the ship, get Spanish flu. Go to the barracks, get Spanish flu. Hang out in raw sewage, well, get dysentery. Go to the cafe, get gonorrhea or syphilis. I guess that was kind of what you had to do. The soldiers that were healthy enough to move were soon organized. While this process occurred, the engineers of the 310th Company C were given orders to arrest President Chachowski and six of eight of his ministers, which they did, and transport them elsewhere for holding. You know, I find it odd that they refer to him as president. 
when all I can find at this time in the sources was that he was like a newly elected member of the Petrograd Soviet, where he opposed the Bolsheviks. Captain Kaplan yet ordered their arrest and sent them to a monastery 30 hours away by ship. The citizens were, go figure, displeased and organized a general strike. I mean, again, beyond not performing cesspit cleaning duties, because they were clearly on strike about that for a while now. And the engineers were ordered to operate the buses, waterworks, sawmill, and so on. This lasted two days before British command gave in and returned the political leaders. This informed the population of a couple things. First, the British, meaning the soldiers, were in charge and can do whatever they wanted. And secondly, their newly elected government had no authority or legitimacy. Not the things you want in a new government that is supposed to be counter-revolutionary. A third thing this showed is that the engineers seemed to be the default choice of things. Clean the cesspit? Check. Pick up dog and horse poop? Check. Run an entire city's infrastructure with the instructions written in a foreign language? Check. Oh, and arrest the government we are saying is legitimate and we're here to support? Check. Anyway, the soldiers, they need to get to soldiering. So before we start that, the Americans had some new gear to get used to. While in Aldershot, England, the Americans had their kits replaced. Their winter uniforms were replaced with British wool winter kit, complete with Shackleton boots. Even their rifles were replaced with Russian rifles manufactured by Westinghouse. Colonel George Stewart is said to have been frustrated by the quote-unquote Britishizing of his unit and quipped in his inquiry to British command if they were going to be going the full extent and would be issuing him 5,000 monocles. While the monocles were never produced, soon after arrival in Archangel, prophylactic kits were added to the standard-issue kit. General Poole, who was the commander over Ironside, split the Americans into two groups. He sent the first group south towards the Volga. Volga was 425 miles from Archangel, so the troops were sent in boxcars, and they made it south near Obuskaya, which was 70 miles into the journey. The French had seized the town on 4 September and were dug in on the far side just off the train tracks. After three weeks of training, it was felt that the very green doughboys were ready to be tested. Ten miles south laid an armored Bolo train. When the British arrived, bringing an armored car of their own, the attack commenced. On 28 September, an American unit moved to outflank the Bolos and only succeeded in finding swamp to wade through in the dark and returning in the next morning of the next day, wet and surely cranky, began the regular assault, assisted by the French. The Bolos countered and retook all the swamp and track they had lost. Two weeks go by, and another attempt is made. This time, thinking of the success in Archangel. No, not the success of mixing diseases from the entire world into one little rural Russian city. The removal of foul odor, arresting of unarmed technocrats, and fixing the bus schedule. The engineers were called in to do some soldiering. They were to sneak behind enemy lines and blow up the track behind the armored car, preventing the Bolo retreat. While there are not reports of wet troops returning, because engineers can either float or, you know, know how to step on dry things, they were successful, but only in that of being repulsed. As the attack pushed forward on 14 October, the armored train simply put it in reverse and left the field with their troop train and blew up a bridge as they crossed it. The push was not supposed to take this long, so the troops left without barrack bags or tents, and the train transport could not lodge them all, so the men slept outside, or at least wished they could have slept. A private said this of that night, quote, spent the worst night ever, no blankets, no fires, and soaking wet, could not even sit down. 
I have not had any sleep since Saturday night. Nothing happened, however, but rain and mosquitoes. I'm just covered with bites. We are not as well equipped as our soldiers in the Spanish War. End quote. Mind you, this was now Monday night, Tuesday morning. There was another group of soldiers, remember? Four companies of American soldiers were loaded onto coal barges and pulled by tug to Bresnik, a mere 140 miles upstream, or five days when being towed by a tug. In day two of the journey, one American soldier died of flu, so it seems either this flu took the soldier quick or command was not too picky on who they took. After two days of training in Bresnik, one company of Americans was ordered to march south up the Divinia. I hope Poole did not intend this detachment to be a surprise, as green American soldiers, they kind of just shot at everything that moved. Fortunately, a few of those things that moved were a handful of Bolo snipers. If Poole demonstrated another facets of this campaign, some sort of brilliance, I might attribute it to that. But, well, we'll talk more about that later. The Americans marching were one part of a two-pronged attack supported by a British monitor moving upriver. So perhaps it was intended to send a bunch of green Americans, um, you know, to walk through the woods and shoot at everything that moved, because the river prong of the attack was the sneak attack. But again, you can judge for yourself soon. Another theater to be open was the Vaga phase, where two gunboats and a company of Americans on a barge would move up and take the town of Shenkursk, just 40 miles upstream. This phase went very well, with the town being captured in two days. However, it was not all sunshine and roses. The Divinia has multiple branches that come back together only to branch out back again. So that first two-pronged maneuver ran into stiff resistance at Kamova. Both banks were reinforced with Bolo infantry and a gunboat in the middle. The Bolo gunboat was named the Muchkova, which sunk as it was surprised in the fog, and shore batteries then pounded the British gunboat, forcing the Allies' ships to fall back. The Royal Scots, however, were able to take the city the morning of 15 September. On 16 September, a steamer docked to unload Allied supplies. Some of the Royal Scots approached the steamer unarmed, only to find it was a bunch of bolos with axes. The British flotilla returned and sunk the steamer and severely damaged another boat that later sank. The next day, the green gun-toting Americans arrived and took up the positions previously held by the Scots. The Americans then moved further upstream 25 miles and took Seltso, aided by white Russian artillery. The, in Seltso, the Americans saw their first casualty on this front with four dead, eight wounded, and one missing. It was now the end of September, and the Bolos sunk two of their own barges to block further movement up the river. The offensive was now at a standstill, and winter was now fast approaching. A concern that was surely setting in was that if General Poole had any illusions on the use of American soldiers, he would soon be reminded that the American troops were only to be used to guard the military stores, not move 50 miles in search of where the bolos may have taken them. Though, in Poole's defense, he may not have known until September the limitations of the American troops as specified in the aid memoir. Though inexcusable was the arrogance of Poole's apparent belief that his presence would inspire the Russians to take up the fight and the expedition would simply guard the stores. Second-in-command General Ironsides apparently disagreed with his boss's assertions or else he would not have intervened in the local politics of Archangel. If his boss's aura happened to enlighten unity and a fierce resistance against the Bolsheviks. Ambassador Francis, though, was in Archangel and seemed to suffer from a chronic case of just what was now appearing 
and would continue, of selective hearing. He took the aid memoir to mean the American troops are to guard the stores, wherever they may be. If they're in bolo hands, then the supplies would need to be, you know, liberated and then secured, whether that be an archangel or Moscow. In addition, if General Poole said go link up with the Czechs and Francis said the army should listen, Francis had an open disdain for the menace that was the Bolsheviks. Francis, though, responded to a telegram from the State Department reminding him of President Wilson's order on the use of American troops by acknowledging the telegram and mailing his response. Yeah, he mailed his response. He's, he's, he actually mailed it from the war zone in the Arctic with frozen ports through Europe at war all the way across the Atlantic to Washington. I mean, I guess it could have went east, but, you know, the Siberian Railway was a little busy with the whole artillery and dynamite and being held by the Bolsheviks, which we'll talk about more soon. Um, the letter was received the day after the Supreme War Council requested the U.S. send five more battalions to North Russia. This was the first indication that the British had critically miscalculated the mission at hand. Though the mission seemed to creep regularly in the first few weeks, first it was to arrive and protect the military supplies at Archangel that the Soviets, you know, said were totally still there. Then it was to look for those supplies. The silly bolos misappropriated. Then it was, Hey, you know, why are there like looking for supplies in the cities near the river? Go link up with that Czech Legion. Oh, the Czech Legion was not able to break through North. Well then, um, let me get back to you on that. Hey, can we get five more battalions up here? Yeah. My assumption is that the request was not so that they could make a large number of snow angels in a hearts and mind campaign. Though I've been wrong before, I will admit. Truthfully, though, Poole requested them to, quote, force his way in deeper to Russia to find recruits and link up with the Czech Legion. He felt that with the additional troops, Western Russia could be forced back into a war with Germany reopening the Eastern Front. I mean, that's insane. But either way, not the point. As early as 18 September, Wilson was expressing his anger at Poole for intervening in local politics and then otherwise ignoring restrictions on U.S. troops and trying to connect with a legion that are supposed to link up with the American and Japanese forces in the East for evacuation. So, yeah, the Czech legion, when it was not able to break through to the North, they were supposed to simply retreat East to the American and Imperial Japanese forces that were holding the supplies in Eastern Russia, where they actually took the aid memoir serious. Yeah, by the way, that's, that's correct. The Americans and the uh, Imperial Japanese army were doing joint operations together, basing together. Um, pretty interesting little footnote in history, but we're only talking about, of course, the campaign on the West side of Russia. And furthermore, President Wilson did not want them to try to reopen the Eastern Front. So Poole, it seems, did not speak American. He could only understand English. And Ambassador Francis was still having that inability to hear things he didn't want to hear flaring up. The State Department, being unhumored, forced a meeting between Poole and Francis that was described as productive by both parties. Now, obviously, the State Department was unhumored by all of this, as I've said, and also not really happy with their ambassador. And I'll tell you this because they actually gave Ambassador Francis the written response 
the written statement that was to be handed to General Poole by Ambassador Francis. So, however, after giving the American position in writing, Francis told Poole that he had a liberal view on the nature of the orders. Not a lot of movement carried on from the previous mentioned actions on the field. The politics of the Allies changed sharply at the beginning of October. Great progress was being made on the Western Front, and Poole was informed there was no longer a need to reopen the Eastern Front. To this, on 14 October, Poole jumped aboard a British icebreaker and headed back to London to plead his case. And Ironside was ordered to hold his position and build up the White Russians. Ironside officially replaced Poole after Poole's arrival in London. Hold and train was the new strategy. And before 30 days had passed, the war on the Western Front would be over. But what about our boys in Archangel? They would not be going home, and their theater was still active, with the guns falling silent around the world. In the Arctic, artillery shells, machine gun, and rifle bullets would continue to fly in support of a war that was now over.
Over, and we won't come back till it's over, over there. 